That brings us uh, this morning to shoe leather wisdom. This morning the topic is doubt. It kind of fits with uh, what we're covering so far. So we've uh, been talking about shoe leather and uh, another illustration for shoe leather. People have been asking the meaning of that. If you're in the Northwest and you're in the mountains, uh, you can go hiking and you can wear tennis shoes, right? Right, Abby? You can wear tennis shoes, my daughter, uh, who does all the time. Uh, and you can get away with it. But there's nothing like a good pair of boots if you're going to go hiking, right? They fit well, they work well, they're waterproof. And if you've got a good pair of boots, you can go a lot farther and a lot safer than if you don't have them. The same is true with God's wisdom. God's wisdom takes you a lot farther in life than you can get on your own. And we've been looking at that in the book of James. We're in chapter 1. We're going to do 5 through 8 this morning. We're just rolling along at a rapid pace here. Yeah. So here's how it goes. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he'll receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Last week we looked at the topic of wisdom, and as I mentioned today, we'll look at the topic of doubt. Right off the bat, the text presents a problem for us in that it states we should ask in faith with no doubting. And immediately the question is, well, who is there that doesn't doubt? Right? The instantaneous reaction, well, then I guess I can't be a Christian because I doubt quite a bit. Well, before we make that leap, let's pray and ask God to give us wisdom appropriate for this passage and its use in our life. All right? Let's seek Him. Lord, uh, you know our hearts and you know as people we doubt a lot. You had people doubt you when you were down here and you have people who doubt you when you're up there. And uh, often we are in deep questions. It's, it's easy to make humor of it, but the struggles are deep. We often get lost in our doubts. And we ask for help this morning as we look at this. Uh, obviously way too short, not enough time, not enough topic. Uh, but I pray that you'd use it this morning in a significant way for the sake of your kingdom and people's focus on their relationship with you. And I ask this in your name. Amen. All right. So let's get started here. We'll move on. Oh, I got, I got it. On. There we go. All right. So it says, but let him ask in faith with no doubting. The Greek here, menden diakermenos, is not doubt. So it means the absence of doubt. And I mentioned, as I mentioned before, this gives us pause because doubt is part of the human fabric, right? You doubted who, what you should eat for breakfast. You doubted who you should date. You doubted, you know, right? We doubt, I mean, when you think about it, it it's part of who we are. Plus, you can take it another direction. Modern philosophy has explored this idea of doubt to the nth degree through several schools of thought. Uh, you have skepticism, rational skepticism, existential philosophy. There are even schools of doubt. You can just Google it, schools of doubt. And there's all these schools that uh, that is um, what they major on. We've been told and taught to doubt everything uh, except our feelings or emotions, which we're told are real, which aren't and contrary to Scripture. But on a more practical level, I think it would not be hard to admit that doubt is something we all struggle with, right? Even those of us full of faith. 
We can doubt ourselves. We can doubt the intentions of others. We can doubt God. We can doubt our worth. We can doubt our value. And it's also true, I think, that different personality types are more prone to doubt than others. Right? Uh, Some of us are extroverts and optimists and always see the glass half full. And some of us just naturally more pessimistic and more cynical and see the glass half empty. Right? And that, that affects how you look at life. I think it's a great encouragement that the Bible illustrates for us others who have struggled with doubt as well, just to know we're not alone in that battle and struggle. Let me just take you through some of the people who wrestled with doubt. Oh, here we go. Get over there. There we go. Biblical examples of doubt. First one would be Zechariah. Remember Zechariah? Gabriel, the angel, came to him. We just covered this at Christmas and told him, hey, you're going to have a kid and you're going to name him John. And Zechariah looked at himself, thought about how old his wife was. Uh, how am I supposed to know this is really going to happen? What did Gabriel say to him? I'm Gabriel, I stand in the presence of God. You don't speak till the baby's born, right? He got reprimanded fairly severely, but he battled with doubt. Uh, here's someone that you wouldn't often think of, John the Baptist. Remember John the Baptist? He actually baptized Jesus. And that he got thrown in prison, and I don't think that was a lot of fun, and I don't think that was the script he had for his life. And he sent his disciples to Jesus to say, ask him if he's really the one. John himself uh, struggled with doubt. Of course, Peter, right, walking out on the water, Lord, if that's you, have me come out to you. And he did. And then it says what? He looked at the storms and the waves, got freaked out, started to sink, and Jesus grabbed his hand and said what? Why did you doubt, O you of little faith? Right? Because it was stormy, that's why. (laughs) Right? I mean, that's the answer to that. Uh, The disciples doubted in a number of places, but remember when the women came back from the tomb and told them that Jesus had resurrected? They were like, nah, uh, no, right? They struggled with doubt on that, and it took several things to straighten that out. Uh, Some other examples of doubt. Thomas doubted. Of course, he's actually labeled with the name Doubting Thomas. Remember, Thomas was full of faith. And at one point uh, during the gospel stories, he says, Jesus is going back to Jerusalem. They said, well, Lord, they just tried to kill you. And you're going to go back? And he, he obviously said yes. And so Thomas says, let's go back and die with him. Thomas was no coward. But he had been so shattered by what the crucifixion did, that when the other disciples told him, hey, we had met the Lord and actually talked to him, he's like, I won't believe it until I can stick my finger in the nail holes and my hand in the side where the spear went in. And he wrestled with doubt in a big way. Uh, There's the first prayer group struggled with doubt. Remember, they're praying for Peter in prison. The angel unlocks the chains, walks Peter out of prison. He comes to the door. He knocks on the door. A servant girl named Rhoda comes up to the door, looks, sees that it's Peter, shuts the door again. Peter's left outside going, well, that was a nice welcome. She runs back to the prayer group, says, hey, God's answered your prayer. Peter's at the door. And they tell her, no, he's not. And they were full of doubt that that would be even possible. Right? So that's kind of encouraging. And then, Probably the one we relate to the most, the father of the demon-possessed boy. Remember, Jesus went up on the mountain, was transfigured. He had Peter and James and John with them. And they come down and 
There's this argument with the other disciples because there was a man who brought his son. He would uh, get pitched into a fire or into water. He'd foam at the mouth. And he was asking the disciples to cast the demon out. And they couldn't do it. And Jesus says, if I, and the man says, hey, if you can heal my son, to, he says this to Jesus, uh, please do it. And Jesus says, if I can. He says, everything's possible to those who believe. And the man says, I do believe. Help me in my unbelief. And that's probably the place where most of us land most of the time, right? I do believe, but help me in my unbelief. Let's take a look for a second here. What is, what is doubt? Well, again, that uh, word here in the Greek is uh, dakrimenos, hard word to describe. It says it describes one who's divided in his mind and wavers between two opinions. So it's a fluctuation. You're going back and forth. You can't land in any one place. James uses a wonderful illustration from nature. You'll find those all through the book of James. Um, when he says, For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. Um, here in the Pacific Northwest, we're familiar with waves, uh, whether it be Muckleteo Beach or Cannon Beach or Ocean Shores or various points in between. We've experienced the waves rolling in, especially if there's a storm, right? And we can watch those things pound the coast and that kind of stuff. A wave provides a good illustration because it has a crest and it also has a trough, right? And depending where you are in that uh, is where your perception is. If you're out in a boat and you're out on the, the sound or on the ocean, the waves can get big enough that when you get up on top, you can see all the way across, but if you get in the trough, you can't see anything. And uh, some of us have been in spots like that, and you know what I'm talking about. This, in a storm, this back and forth, up and down motion can become really dangerous. And I'm sure as James, who grew up on the Sea of Galilee, probably would have known, especially if you happen to be in a boat. You don't realize the power that it has. And likewise, doubt has a really strong current to it. It has a power to it that we often wrestle with. In regards to asking God for wisdom, which James says he gives generously and without reproach, uh, I picked up an insight this week from one of our elders. Uh, I was on the phone having a conversation with Al Robert. Al and Paul are right over here. and We were talking and uh, we were dialoguing on this passage. And he says, Steve, I, I've been thinking about this as we've gone through. And he, he says, you know, I, I want to throw something your way. He says, you know, when it comes to wisdom, he says, I believe 80% of learned wisdom is, looking, is from looking through the rearview mirror, not out through the windshield. And I said, what do you mean by that? And he said, well, looking back, he said, I can see clearly what went wrong I, or what I should have done or what I could have done better or even what I was learning about God that I didn't know I was learning at the time. He said, uh, when I look forward, it's usually clear as mud. Right? I'm hard-pressed to really figure out what's actually going. But he says, when I look back, I can see God's fingerprints over it. And he was speaking uh, about this learned wisdom. He was speaking specifically uh, about a few years ago when he went through a devastating back surgery that kind of altered the terrain of his life. But through all that, he says, he can look back and he realized he gained a great deal of learned wisdom. And from that learned wisdom... He gained a great deal of learned steadfastness. And that's what James has been talking about, how to be steadfast in the midst of trials. And then he made this comment. He said, you know, Steve, if you know Al, that's 
he talks that way, right? You know, Steve. says, as a result, I've learned about the grace of God in a way that I would have never known God's grace. Let me say that again. He said, as a result, I have learned about the grace of God in a way that I would have never known God's grace if it hadn't been for that experience. And he says, and that experience informs me about the future and the incredible character of God. Tied right with that comment, I'm on the phone. Abby this week says, Dad, look at this great comment from Oswald Chambers. She had said, you can have it. And it ties right along with this. Oswald Chambers says, faith is the deliberate confidence in the character of God whose ways you may not understand at the time. Anybody been in the spot whose ways you may have not understood at the time? You should just see the heads nod, right? And that's what James is saying. We must come to a single-minded trust, faith, if you will, of God's character and wisdom, even if it doesn't make sense to us and even if we're going through sufferings. If we waver, James says, we will become unstable. And when this happens, everything kind of goes awry for us, right? I mean, you've been there. The timing's off, and then the listening is off, and then the motives is off, and then we just kind of become a mess. We just get slapped around and don't know which way is up. Psalm 107 paints a, a great picture of this, being tossed around by this. It says, it says it this way. It says, For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. And they mounted up to heaven, and they went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight, and they reeled and staggered like drunken men, and were at their wits' end. Anybody been at their wits' end at life? Ever been there? Absolutely don't know what the next step is? It says, Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. And he made the storm be still, and the waves of the seas were hushed. And then they were glad that the waters were quiet. And he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wonderful works to the children of man. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people and praise him in the assembly of the elders. We can become steadfast because God's steadfast. And we can become steadfast when we see God take us through the waters. And we don't learn about God unless we go through the waters. This graphic picture that James uses of the waves is often the state of our inner world or mind. In a word, what is it? Turbulent. Right? We look peaceful on the outside. We look cool. We're collected. I got it together. Right? I don't need your help. I'm fine. How you doing? Fine. Right? But what are we on the inside? <laughs> right? Just all over the place. That's what James is talking about here. Turbulent. Other words that would be used would be unstable, divided of two minds. Uh, James follows the illustration with this description. He says, For that person who comes to God but, but doubts, asks but doubts, says that person must not suppose he'll receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Ladies, aren't you glad it uses manly language and kind of leaves you out of that equation? Right? Now I want us to pause for a second. I, I want to look at this uh, with us together. Why do you think James wrote this? Why do you think he wrote it this way? That one who comes must ask in faith and must not doubt. 
Now, I can't say with any kind of total certainty, uh, you know, I don't know if, if, if Jesus or James are within 50 miles of this. If you were to ask me, what I think this is, is an autobiographical comment. Okay? Why did James say you must ask in faith and not doubt? Well, because I believe James knew what it was like to ask the Lord in doubt. Right? James is looking back, as Al would say, through the rearview mirror. And he's looking at his own experience of wrestling with and trying to come to grips with the idea that his older half-brother was God. Would that be a problem for any of you? Especially if you think about who your older brother was? The promised Messiah, the Savior of the world, really? I mean, the guy who was in the bed with me and did, it's, wow. I think doubt was a very difficult thing for James to overcome. He had to come overcome, I would suggest, a lot of doubt to get there. Like Peter, he had found himself sinking with Jesus, reaching out to take his hand and looking straight in his eyes, saying, and why did you doubt, O you of little faith? And I also think it's important to realize that people who James was writing to, this book, they were not super saints. Okay? They were not, yes, we're in persecution. Watch my example. I am a great saint of the kingdom of God and you will be blessed if you follow me. That, that's not who they were. They were just your average common Jews who heard Jesus talking, believed in Him, watched the crucifixion were shattered, then heard and saw and probably experienced the resurrection. And the next thing they know, a persecution's break up. They have gotten kicked out of their homes. They have fled for their lives. They've been able to maybe grab a sack of stuff. They're in another town and they have no idea what's next. They are upside down. And James is writing saying, I know what it's like to have that kind of doubt. Don't doubt that way. These guys, these people that James was writing to, they weren't trying to upend the world or even have their world upended. Right? They had placed their faith in Christ and then consequently lost everything. You ever notice when you try to walk with God, things get worse or harder? No? Am I the only one? You're looking very confident out there. Anybody recognize that place? Right? It seems to be part and parcel of what it means for God to develop character in us. But we can have a divided heart. That divided heart, James describes there, he'll be divided, he'll be a double-minded man, unstable, and all he does is uh, dipsukos, dis is twice, sukos or psyche is the word for soul. So it literally, the word literally means two-souled. And we've often used that illustration. I've mentioned it this morning. You got one foot in the world and you got one foot in the kingdom, right? Being two souled. Uh, nowhere is this two souls mentality more clearly illustrated than with Israel and the wilderness wanderings. Uh, if you're reading through the Bible again, and uh, Ron and I just finished Exodus together, so we're right in the thick of it in the stories, right? And um, it's not a pretty picture. This being two-souled. 
it goes from, um, yes, we will obey the Lord, to why did you bring us out here in this wilderness to kill us? It goes from, yes, we will let the Lord deliver us, to let's go back to Egypt. Right? It goes from, we will worship the Lord and only the Lord, to golden calves and immorality. Like that. The shift in the current is as fast and as quick as a wave twisting in on itself. And you find other examples in Scripture like this. Another a character who demonstrates double-mindedness is a guy named Demas. You find him in 2 Timothy. He was on the missions trip with Paul and Luke. And it says that he got to a certain place and he split, abandoned Paul and Luke. And it says because he loved this present world. And, uh, and so he split, right? It got to the pressure point, which way we're going to go. And he chose to go back to the old stuff. Of course, the absolute extreme example of a person divided in their heart or their soul like this of being two-souled or double-minded is Judas Iscariot. Right? With Jesus the whole time and not with Jesus the whole time. It's kind of scary when you think of that. What are some causes of doubt? Well, obviously sin. Right? It's amazing how foggy things get when we sin. Um, I had a story of a person that was here and went somewhere and and they no longer walking with the Lord. They, they just never really connected. Right? But most of the time, something else is going on behind the scenes. Usually it involves a girlfriend. Usually it involves sex. They're funny, it's hard to believe in God once that happens, right? We become double-minded. Um, lack of knowledge or information. If I stay out of the Word, if I don't read the Bible, if I really don't know God's heart or His thoughts or His intentions towards me, if I don't stay fresh because we as humans forget and so we have to read the things that we forgot, if I don't stay in the Word, it's just really easy to become double-minded. Fear can make me doubt and make me double-minded, right? Is God really in this? I'm afraid. What do I do? What's my next step? Uh, we have an enemy, warfare, a whisperer, Scripture calls him, and he's very willing to paint the other side of the picture. He's very willing to tell you why God's not real. He's very willing to tell you that uh, God's not going to come through for you. And he's very willing to help us with being double-minded. But probably the one that makes us double-minded the most is suffering. Right? When we have to go through suffering, um, suffering would be great if it was for five minutes. Most of us could handle five minutes. But when we get into a thing that's suffering and it doesn't look like there's an end to it, and we can't see an end to it, that's when we really start getting in trouble. Because now we're fearing. And there's two paradigms in Scripture that actually uh, play into this that I think we need to take a look at. Let's look at these two paradigms. Because they have to do with God. Okay? So you have the picture of the Father who gives good gifts 
And you have the picture of the father who disciplines. Which of you, speaking of the father of good gifts, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? And here's how this works. You go through a difficult time. It's a terrible time. You're struggling. And then Satan says, is that a good gift? Is that how God rewards your faithfulness? Is that what obedience produces? What kind of good dad would do that? You're a good dad. You're a good mom. You know how to give good gifts to your children. Would you give that to your children? Why would a good father give that? To your children. Now, God is good, and God does give good gifts, and God has been more than faithful to all of us in this room. But then the other side is this the Father who disciplines. Hebrews says it this way My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves. And he chastises every son whom he receives. For it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. I found that line a little funny because... Uh, my respect for my dad only grew after I was about 50 to where I actually appreciated it, right? Uh, I didn't appreciate it at 16. took some time there. That's just autobiographical. Some of you may walk in those shoes as well. But it says, um, but he disciplines us for good that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful. Amen? All discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. What Al was saying is, man, I did not ask for that bad surgery. I wasn't looking to go through back surgery. Al loved to play golf, and all that went out the window. And he says, you know, but as I look back on it, again, through the rearview mirror, he said, it has yielded the fruit of righteousness and peace And I've been trained by it. He said, I'm a better man because I had to go through that. Then Hebrews says this, Consider him, if you're in a place of suffering, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. So the writer of Hebrews was saying that to that group. James was saying, hey, I know where you're at, but don't doubt. Just keep asking in faith. Romans underlines this. I'm just trying to show you this is all through Scripture. You can't hardly get away from it. It says, For um, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Famous verses, right? That we, Daddy, can I talk to you? That we, we emphasize that all the time. But we don't really read the rest of that 
passage. The rest of the passage says this. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. If children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Boom! Wow! Awesome! Provided, that's a transitional clause there, provided that we suffer with Him in order that we may be also glorified with Him. Most of us get the we want to be glorified with Him part. We don't get the we have to suffer with them part. Did it ever occur to you that Jesus was modeling wisdom by the way he suffered? Because he was following the lead of his father? First Peter coaches us when we struggle with doubt. Peter's uh, arguing here for a single-mindedness in Coming from Peter again, I would think this is also autobiographical. Therefore, preparing your minds for action, be sober-minded. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Isn't it hard to be holy when you're suffering? Anybody notice that? No, am I the only one? Let me tell you, it was hard to be godly when I was throwing kidney stones. Okay? And you wouldn't wish that pain on your worst enemy. And I mean that most sincerely. You can ask my wife. I found myself out on a concrete garage floor, sweating white and barfing on the pavement and could not stand up. I don't exactly uh, think of being godly when I'm going through that. It just kind of eludes me at that moment. Anybody else? Right? But it says here, it says, You shall be holy, for he who has called you holy, you shall be holy in all your conduct. It says, You shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, then he goes on to say, Then conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, but with precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world. God had his plan in place, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. What am I trying to say here? Here's what I'm trying to say. If you believe in Christianity and you believe a Christianity separated from suffering and persecution and that you won't ever have to hit that, you believe in a false Christianity. This American ideal that I can believe in Jesus and I can get everything I want, and I mentioned this before, the boat and the house and the car and the hair, and the, I can do all this stuff, but I never have to face the wall. I never have to hurt. never have to go through anything difficult. And then I walk in heaven with the go-to-heaven card, swipe it, the gates open and I'm in. It's a beautiful thing. That was never the plan of the Lord at all. We knew when we came to Him that He modeled for us and we knew that we would have to walk through what the Bible calls our trials. Now, not all trials are physically suffering health-wise like Al went through. But I don't think we have to be too far in this room to realize Trials come in many and various forms. James says, count it all joy when you encounter various trials. Okay? 
We have to see the trials that come our way as part of what God uses to shape our character so that we can become who he really wants us to become. Does anybody stand on the sidewalk and line up for that and say, ooh, 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 pick me? No. Okay? I don't say pick me. I say pick Kevin. Kevin's cool. (laughs) But you have to realize that in his sovereignty, God allows those things to come to us individually. And what he's asked me to go through, he's not asked you to go through. And what he's asked you to go through, he's not asked me to go through. But he's all asked us to go through it. We will all go through together. Therefore, a great part, you know why people want to avoid church? Because if I avoid church, I'll avoid the message that I have to suffer. Do they suffer any less because they avoid church? No. Life just has a nasty way of throwing curveballs at you. It just hooks you, it sinks you, and it blows you up. What's James saying? Look, I know what you're going through. I know what I went through. Keep operating in faith and don't doubt. He didn't take you this far to kill you. He came this far to bless you. But you've got to see it out the other side. This will yield really great stuff, but not right now. That's the key phrase, but not right now. Where does he set your eyes? Set your eyes on what is to be revealed when Jesus comes back because then it all gets played out. We have mistakenly believe the lie that says your reward is here now. Right? Isn't that what all advertising commercials are saying? Right? You deserve, I can't believe how many, it's your right, you deserve, like, when did we get to the place that we deserve? James is saying, no, that comes later. Your reward's not now. Your reward's later. Now we principally get to walk by faith through what Scripture calls the veil of tears. But what does Romans say? When we get there, Jesus will wipe every tear from our eye. And these, what Paul calls momentary and light afflictions, will fade away because of the greatness of the revealing of Jesus himself. That's our faith, people. Not that everything will go well for us. Often, when things aren't going well for us is when people really see Jesus in us. Not when things are going good. Let's pray.